0: hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the best pictures podcast i'm ian this is maggie and on this episode we are doing the 60th best picture the last emperor
1: the last emperor is a 1987 epic biographical drama about the final emperor of china it was directed by bernardo bertolucci who was actually the first italian filmmaker to win an academy award um, I believe we have seen a couple get nominated, but he was the first to win. The screenplay was adapted by Bertolucci and Mark Peplow, and it is adapted from Puyi's 1964 autobiography. As we have said with every other biographical film we have done, when we are talking about these people, we are going to be talking about them as characters in this film, because, of course... You know, any film about a person is going to be influenced and shaded by the person who made the film's opinions of them. And then also, even if you have the source material being an autobiography, that's more bias even on top of that. So uh, we may reference some like reading we've done kind of surface level about some of these people. But in general, we're going to be really focused on them as characters in the film.
0: For sure. And it's interesting that it was an ad- adaptation of an autobiography because that all of a sudden makes so much, makes so much sense.
1: <laughs> um, it stars uh, John Lone as Puyi, Peter O'Toole, who I was like, O'Toole, oh, here you are again in another <laughs> uh, biopic. <laughs> Joan Shin, uh to name kind of like the top three, but it's a very large cast.
0: Yeah, the scale that they pulled off with the actors and especially the extras was, in my opinion, very impressive and like contributed to lots of the visuals and stuff. But yeah, I I did enjoy the performances by the the top three or the leading three.
1: Yeah, I'll, those are the, the top three that I always see listed. I will also say for such a large cast and so many characters, I did feel like they did a very nice job of distinguishing them, and I was able to kind of, like, keep everyone straight. Like, there wasn't a lot of redundancy, and I think that's something that often happens when there's a very large cast. Yeah, for sure. Score is by David Byrne and uh, Kong Su. Amazing score. Loved it. It was also the first Western feature film authorized by the People's Republic of China to film in the Forbidden City in Beijing, which makes all the difference when it comes to visuals, I think.
0: Oh, for sure. And just their ability to show you the expanse and like kind of grandeur of this particular location just to reinforce, I think they're like kind of editorializing about the excesses of the emperorship, which I'm still not 100% sure if that was kind of what they were going for, but that's what I took away. It it was super effective for that.
1: For me, it was a little bit more about showing the scale and how this is like a city within itself and then juxtaposing it with the glimpses we see of the outside world Mm -hmm. and just like this like weird isolation within like this incredible maze-like complex. I mean, there, I feel like there's so much you could read into it, you know, whether it was intentional or not, but I think because it's shot on location, it makes a huge difference. Have you been to the forbidden city? Because I, I believe you I have went, have been to Beijing. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite quite interesting. I went on a very smoggy day, so it was not nearly as pretty as what I saw in the film, um, but it was still really cool.
1: Uh, did you get a tour? And was Puyu mentioned?
0: I don't think I did.
1: I was just curious if you, if you the um, kind of final shot seemed seemed a little deja vu for you <laughs> in any sort of way. yeah no
0: I was not visited by the ghost of the last emperor's past so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Also, so Bertolucci, when he went to the Chinese government in order to get approval for this project, he actually went with two possible projects. Um, so this was one and the other was an adaptation of La Condition uh, Humaine by Andre Malraux, which is about a failed communist insurrection in Shanghai in 1927. So this is either the one that was approved or the one that the government was maybe a little bit more interested in. I also read that the process for getting it approved actually like wasn't that difficult, it seemed like.
0: Huh. That is, to be completely honest, don't know enough about the political climate in uh, like real world China during the '80s. So I I find that very interesting, given how um, particular <laughs> they are about how uh, China is depicted and, and things are communicated.
1: Yeah, I I wasn't sure exactly either. And I don't know as much about current day. I feel like I've heard of some films that were difficult to get through. Um, But it it sounded like this one was a pretty smooth process.
0: And you know, given how, like, they don't show Puyi in a great light, in my opinion. So, like, that probably, in my, I think would contribute to them being more than happy to, like, have the film be made.
1: I, I, it's it's a very, like, neutral film-in tone, which was really interesting because... I think and and for me honestly like that's where a little bit of the problem lies because I didn't get a strong sense of Puyi as a character and I feel like some of the stronger biopics we've seen they treat the historical figure like a character if we're talking if we're talking you know not historical accuracy but as far as like what made a good film you know those can, those can be two completely different things but yeah I think I think probably the best Biopic we've seen quote unquote biopic we've seen is Amadeus (laughs) and that's you really can barely call it biographical,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but it sure as hell is entertaining.
1: (laughs) It sure as hell is entertaining and they take a very like strong stance with Salieri Mm -hmm. as a character, um, even though it's super historically inaccurate. I did read that this definitely did get like some criticism around historical accuracy. And some people felt like they may have left out um, certain aspects of Pui's character as a, like a real human being. But again, like we're not going to get too into that. Like that's one. This is certainly not a, an area or time period of history that like I'm super well versed in and also like, you know, we're here to write the film.
0: Yeah, I will. I will say I did read it. I shouldn't say read. I more skimmed the <laughs> Wikipedia article of real life Puyi. And they from what I was understanding, they really did downplay like how horribly the, the eunuchs were treated by Puyi um, by real life Puyi. But I mean, they weren't treated well in the film, but <laughs> may, no. maybe downplayed I- a little.
1: It seems like it seems like dates and stuff align pretty well. And it's really more of a question of like character and motive, although there's parts of the film and I wish they'd leaned into this more that are like, depending on who you talk to, the stories are very different and like the read on somebody could be very different. And yeah, I wish they'd kind of leaned into that a little bit more. They had like a little bit of it going towards the end, but I think it would have been really cool if they had kind of like gone a little more like Rashomon with it. To get kind of, you know, the the different perspectives all talking about the same person. Um, this was nominated for a lot, and I think it won everything it was nominated for. So Best Picture, obviously. Bertolucci won for Best Director. Bertolucci and Peplo won for Best Screenplay. It won for Art Direction. I mean, freaking of course. Uh,
0: it should win for Art Direction. Like, holy shit the visuals like
1: <laughs> and just how varied the visuals are right because you mm-hmm. have the splendor of the palace and then you have kind of this 1919 into 1920s like luxury and um, I forget where they are but in like that coastal city where they are where Tiansen. So, Tiansen. forgive my pronunciation
0: yes. it's really bad
1: <laughs> forgive all of our pronunciations but yes uh, Tianjin. that's very different from the prison
0: oh yeah and honestly, the way that they both capture like testament to the cinematography and then actually use color very deliberately throughout the film to show you how it's progressing. Amazing, amazing work from that that perspective for me. Now, I, I did see that the theatrical release was literally 48 minutes shorter than the extended version that we watched. And I really want to see that version because I feel like that Sam. would have been... Perfect.
1: <laughs> Same. I didn't even realize I was watching an extended version. Oh yeah. my! God. I yes. Yeah. I feel like the, yes. I would have loved to see a theatrical version because my biggest complaint on this is the pacing. Speaking of cinematography, 100% agree with you. It won for cinematography. Yes. Vittorio uh, Storaro, <laughs> a beautiful, beautiful movie. Uh, One for costume design, of course, and again, like just the varied different types and eras were moving through amazing. It won for best film editing, which I have a gripe with.
0: Yeah. I think had we seen the theatrical release, like we probably would have a different opinion. Cause I could see glimmers of shockingly good editing, like in certain spots that just kind of didn't come through because of how indulgently long some of these scenes were. So I, I feel like they missed opportunities to uh, edit.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> in the I'm to be cut. perfectly honest. There's only one extended director's cut that I've ever seen, I think. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's only one that I was like, oh, yes, that all needed to be in there. I like this better. And that was Amadeus.
0: Mm, yeah totally agree Uh -uh. because it served to the story i don't think all that was added here did
1: (laughs) agreed um it won for best score again i really liked the score it also won for best sound
0: interesting i'm not i'm kind of torn on the score because as an entity unto itself i thought the score was beautiful i am less of a fan with how it was woven in because it seemed In certain places, and I'll mention it more deeply, but it would come in and be like cloyingly emotional in a way that seemed like I did had some whiplash versus the previous scene. So I I wanted kind of more and less all at the same time as in like more consistent and like throughout the film and then potentially more um, like levels to the score in adjacent scene. So that's just, I, I'm being, you know, a little nitpicky here, but. No, I
1: I um, agree though. I, I think I know exactly what you're saying. I liked the score in and of itself. It had a couple moments where it really shined that I'll call out, but in general, it was, it wasn't variable. Yeah. It was very same throughout. And then there were a couple of times where I was like, the height of the score doesn't necessarily match the height of the scene. Exactly.
0: And I'm gonna throw this out here and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I got some Miyazaki soundtrack vibes in certain places. And that is what like really sealed the deal for me being less of a fan of it in this particular film. Cause like in in the Miyazaki films, you have a, a theme that's so much more omnipresent, and you get variations on that theme, and you get swells that go with the like visuals and the storyline this just it felt like they chunked pieces of the score and just laid it on top of specific scenes um, like in a very abrupt way to me
1: i will be fully honest i am not familiar with miyazaki work um i know that's horrible and i should be i know i know i know i'm aware i'm gonna have to be
0: like we have to watch at least like howl's moving castle like I'm, (laughs) i'm so down like
1: i like i said i'm i'm well aware that that's an issue but um you know just to kind of call out some scores that we've talked about and covered on the podcast as far as like stuff that's really you know matching what's going on i think we called out i want to say like rocky for instance like it's hitting the right heights and then it'll back out what are some other really good i mean any for me any max steiner score uh with the way he recycles themes or will change Mm -hmm. keys of the same theme like it would have been nice if i just saw like if you're recycling a theme maybe in one scene It's a little bit more whimsical and happy when he's younger or something. And then after he has the realization of how isolated he is, maybe we bring back the same theme, but like drop the key or like have it go slower, you know, something like that. Like I would have liked to see a little bit more of that.
0: Well, and even like Platoon, that that soundtrack was sparse, but felt like it complemented the places in which it was placed so much more effectively.
1: Yeah, and that's that's another one, too. They, they recycled a lot of the same music, but it, mm-hmm. they were, I think, a little bit pickier about where they did it. Other nominees from that year, Broadcast News, Fatal Attraction, Hope and Glory, and Moonstruck. I know we've both seen Moonstruck.
0: <sighs> Moonstruck. I mean, this... Absolutely. Like, I'm not sure Moonstruck should have won over this, which kind of pains me to say, but.
1: (laughs) I enjoy Moonstruck a lot more. I will watch Moonstruck again. I don't know particularly when I would watch this. I would, you know what? I would, let me not say that. I would watch this again if I saw the theatrical release. Then I would yes. watch it again.
0: I'm so curious to see it. I'm going to try and find it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let me know. But yeah, I agree. Um, of the those nominees that I've seen, I've seen Moonstruck. And I I, I don't know if I'd necessarily give it a <laughs> win as much as I love it.
0: All righty. Well, shall we uh, go into some notes?
1: Let's go into some notes.
0: So I think... At least in in talking about this prior to starting recording, we kind of viewed Puy's arc in kind of three big chunks. So kind of prior to Johnston's arrival, showing some of his kind of upbringing in the, the Forbidden City, Johnston's kind of tutelage and influence, and then uh, the downhill spiral uh, after Johnston leaves. Um, so I think that's going to be how we approach this one. Cause it is, uh, quite a lot of movie to get through.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, and I think once we hit on those three sections, we'll kind of hit on them separately throughout all of those sections, there's various framing devices happening. And then I think maybe at the end we'll circle around and kind of mm-hmm. talk about the, f- the framework of the plot. Cause I think that's going to be a very interesting discussion.
0: Oh, for sure. So it- Starting that very first uh, scene there.
1: And they actually start with the platform, which is more of a framing device than...
0: Yes, this is where they're actually bringing the war criminals in um, to the... I'm trying to remember. The Fushun prison. Fushun, I believe. But it's where they've rounded up all of the uh, war criminals from, I believe it was World War Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the difference that we see between kind of visually what we saw before and then the dark, gritty like reality of this platform immediately just sets the scene for how kind of dark this is supposed to be. So again, props to the cinematography there.
1: I mean, the opening shot is brilliant of everyone lined up along the train platform.
0: Yeah, loved it so much. And honestly, the shot of... All of the prisoners walking across the prison yard just like sent chills down my spine. And I think it was yes. like a combination of scale and this amazing contrast between like the, the light cobblestones and their really dark prison uniforms. And it, it just worked so well for me.
1: And all the set design and costuming and lighting is very like gray and dark in this section. We meet who we come to find out is adult Puyi there's a very interesting interaction where like the other prisoners realize who he is and you have some people who like, um, come and bow to him. And it's a very like tense thing because we're, you know, we're kind of figuring out, obviously he's in some sort of situation that is, I'm going to say not optimal for him, uh, potentially Uh, very dangerous, (laughs) potentially dangerous. So, um, we had a little tension there immediately
0: for sure. And uh, just as a, a trigger warning here, um, there is some talk of suicide that we're going to like very quickly get into. So, you know, skip it's several very minutes brief. ahead, very brief, but getting into that, we, we see Puyi enter the bathroom. And again, just these stark shadows in this room. And you really do see loans performance coming through here with the, like, conflict and storm behind his eyes at least i was getting that and the visual that just left leaves you um or that you're left with in that scene is him having his hands in the sink with clouds of red blood just billowing out into the water and just that i don't know how t- to how to better like explain how powerful that was because we're using an audio medium not <laughs> visual yeah but like so good
1: did you get major amadeus vibes i got major amadeus vibes
0: I think so. Like, kind of a little bit tortured genius vibes.
1: Well, also think about the way Amadeus began. It become it begins in a very similar way with like um, our main character, kind of like off on his own. There's a suicide, and you have someone like break down the door to get to them. Not a ton of similar. Like, it's hard to say if the character of Puyi is really that similar to the character of Salieri. Like, I I feel like he's set up to potentially go on like a similar arc but doesn't the the Salieri character is definitely well it's it's more of a character like <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's the tortured evil or the tortured genius who becomes evil it's definitely a lot more of um a lot more dramatic
0: for sure but with that that scene you're immediately shifted back to um Peking or Beijing in eight, 1908 and the visual shift is So jarring in the best way because all of a sudden we are in this like golden nostalgic past, and everything looks warm and comforting, and you really know that you're in a different place. And the cinematography, and the shot composition, and just all of the way that they directed these massive scenes, just go go watch it. (laughs) I
1: think it's interesting that you called it cozy because I wouldn't necessarily call Pui's life in the Forbidden City cozy like he's so isolated and mm-hmm. immediately even though you know when we meet him it's like 3 year old puyi mm-hmm. like it's a toddler and um the level of like formality and ritual yeah that surrounds him is i mean it wonderfully juxtaposed with the fact that you literally have a toddler running around um and it's yeah, going uh, up richard to the richard vu <laughs> who plays three-year-old Puyi and I, I thought as a toddler was doing great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, and I, I I totally loved the way that like Bertolucci just kind of let this kid run Mm. and would follow him with the camera. Like when he is brought to the Dowager Empress, who's dying and like basically informs him, Oh, the emperor is dead and you are now the emperor to again, a three-year-old as if, this three-year-old knows what any of that means. But the way you have Puyi, like, hiding behind the columns and, like, very playfully making his way forward, I just, I loved the juxtaposition of, like, that child playfulness and innocence with, like, this overabundance of ceremony mm-hmm. and, like, the weight of what has actually happened and the fact that, of the like, this child is taking over, like, I I think by the time, like, when he takes the throne, it's already not a politically potent position anymore. I think it's still, it's already very much symbolic. But still, like, that's a lot of heavy responsibility to put on a three-year-old.
0: And yeah, even as we go through the, the coronation and him doing... Kid things like he's not just going to sit on the throne while he's like has uh, the the ceremony performed. He is literally running around and down through all of the the eunuchs and finds a cricket. Like it, I don't know. It, it's just such this whimsical view of a kid being a kid, but. All the time because he is the emperor and he is divine, literally. Like everybody's kowtowing to his every whim and following him as a kid. And I don't know, that absurdity to me is just really interesting. Like, kind of funny, but also like.
1: It's funny, but it's also a little sad because he is the only child there. And in fact, we don't see him meet another child until he's eight. And he yes. gets to meet his younger brother,
0: <laughs> yeah, which that that particular scene i I really in, enjoyed kind of their brotherly like relationship that was going on before we get too far into that, though i I do want to talk kind of about his the relationship in in the movie between him and his mother because it's very clear as he is essentially ripped from her breast and by essentially i mean literally <laughs> which i did feel like the boobs were a little bit gratuitous and there were a couple moments there where i was like this is gratuitous but
1: well how else are we supposed to know that armo is his wet nurse if she didn't just have a boob out all the time
0: i mean i don't know
1: <laughs> no i agree it's an 80 it's an 80s movie
0: <laughs> it's it's fine but the the second scene in which we have Puy, um breastfeeding? Like it is framed almost in like Renaissance, like painting sort of frame with his gold against the like lotus pond in the back, underneath um, just the the canopy with him as his mother, I believe. Um, no, that's so, Armo. Oh, it's that's Armo.
1: I thought that was his mother. Why did I think? No, that was that's his Armo because he. I I don't think he sees like literally. He is ripped from his mother. Like they they basically take him and they're like, he's going to be the emperor. Bye. Um, and then I don't think we see her again until she brings his brother to ah, visit. Okay. And remember there's the whole exchange where she's got tears going down her face and basically being like, do you remember me? Nope. <laughs> I'm your mom. Yeah. His, his most like maternal um, connection is with Armo who they of course later take away from him, but mm-hmm. it's just reinforcing how isolated he is. And again, like as we mentioned, he doesn't meet a younger kid, another kid until he meets his younger brother and when he's eight. And I have to say, both child actors are killing it. But uh, T.J. so again, so sorry if I butchered that, killing it as eight-year-old Puyi. Amazing, amazing performance.
0: For sure. And I mean, he he gets to... <laughs> Lean in a little bit to, I'm going to say puckish, and that's kind of downplaying what an asshole this, this kid is. He's a little is. bratty. Um,
1: he's bratty. He's a lot I mean, bratty. <laughs> I mean, if God, if you had been told that you were the divinely appointed emperor from the time you were three until you were eight, like we'd all be brats. I was, just, I was an only child for five <laughs> years and I was still a brat. And my parents weren't like, oh, yes, you're royalty. <laughs>
0: I just that that point that you just made, though, is why I'm so conflicted about Puyi's character in general, because seeing this upbringing, I do think does wonders to really set the stage for how fucked up his like view of things are. And to some extent, you can argue that that is his fault. But on the other hand, he's also confined to the Forbidden City and nobody's ever going to tell him anything but what he does because he's. Divine. Like, so
1: I think this we have a like the perfect setup for a very complicated character arc. I think the writing starts to fall short when we hit adult Puyi. Yes. I think that's where it really starts to fall short, and it really doesn't kind of complete the character arc for either better or worse that we're sort of promised and given the setup for. But I think those earlier scenes where we are seeing the childhood, I think we we fully understand that like this is a child who has been raised as if he has ultimate authority, who has been told you are the emperor, you the most important person here. Like you rule everything who has never been disciplined or questioned and has yeah. been allowed to do whatever he wants. But at the same time is also intelligent and curious because you have his brother at, at one point, just getting so fed up with him and being like, you're not the emperor. And that's where we find out that you know there's been a coup. China is now a republic, and that he's just been locked away, and no one has told him any of this. So they have the great scene of those two kids climbing to look over the wall, mm-hmm. and you have the realization with Puyi that like that's a different world. And when he climbs down, and he asks, I guess it's his, his like advisor, is like, "Am I the ruler?" Of China like am I the emperor of China and the advisor says yes inside the forbidden city
0: yeah devastating but I do appreciate that they still like they do lean into the idea that if you're told something so vehemently for as a kid and you're still a kid like you don't understand the complexities and political machinations of like a country. <laughs> so it, yeah. it really that whole scene there ends with him just being like I don't understand. And I mean, like I am projecting a little bit of my understanding of Puyi being kind of well, not kind of, but being a cruel asshole on him. So I don't feel that bad for him, which again, could be me projecting, but also to me is kind of a failing in some way for me to like care one way or the other. Like I don't care enough to be rooting for the fact that he has been deposed, but I don't care for him enough to like feel his pain of like having his wet nurse taken away and being ousted from the throne and all that. So I like your point about it being kind of neutral, I think really rings true in this part for me.
1: Well, and I, I think up till this point, like I wasn't necessarily like rooting for Puyi. Yeah. I wasn't like, oh, yeah, I want to see him back on the throne or whatever but Mm -hmm. i i i felt for like the kid like i was like oh this poor child has not been allowed to be a child and also just found out that like everything he thought like all of the reasons that he thought he couldn't be a child kind of don't matter because that is purely symbolic it's he's isolated so i i feel i feel like i like I felt for him. Um, I I just wanted to see it play out more, which I guess we kind of get, but I just...
0: I don't feel like we do too much though is the thing. Like he, to make a long story short, really in what I see is we we get a petulant child who's never been disciplined, that stereotype that turns into an asshole of a teenager and young man. Who then withers under the pressure of like any sort of real leadership that is not just being a figurehead, and that to me is just such an unsatisfying progression of this character. But again, that is my opinion. <laughs> but
1: I think that's a good summary, and I think I think I could have been more invested at a certain point. Like I, I like I wanted to see Puyi want more. Yeah, and we we get a glimpse of that when we hit 15-year-old Puyi and we get the introduction of Johnston.
0: Yeah, like the glimmer of this progressiveness that he has kind of always held as part of his wants.
1: I don't even know if it's really truly progressiveness, right? Like he talks about it being progressive. I think it's more of just he wants what the outside world has because he's never been a part of it.
0: Mm, Yeah, so it's like a curiosity.
1: Yeah, and I think like some of the policies he's, he's instituting are like, technically progressive as in like they buck tradition, but I don't think he's doing them necessarily because like he wants to be progressive. Like, I mean, well, one, he's 15.
0: Yeah. Two he's very sheltered
1: 15. His education has been super controlled as we see when you have the shot of the two men listening outside the door as he has his first lesson with Johnston and we understand Mm -hmm. like he's being monitored. His education has been tightly controlled. I, he's not making these decisions based on like what's going to be the wider social, economic, or political impacts of these decisions. He's making them because he's like, I'm so sick of what I have here. Like he at this point understands his isolation and kind of understands that it's a little a little bit for naught mm-hmm. and is like, there's a world out there I'm not participating in and I want to be a part of it, which I think is is valid for a teenager. That felt like a very real emotion and like place for the character to be at the time I just I wanted to see more of that in adult Puyi
0: yeah yeah instead of the kind of resignation to exist
1: he he becomes like like the character just becomes a weaker character later in the film because like in this section with 15 year old Puyi like Mm -hmm. of course you have him talking about like wanting a car. There's like the scene where Johnston gives him the bicycle.
0: Oh, the line about eyes up. Oh, what is it? Head up, eyes forward, like in life. (laughs) There's some really good lines.
1: Yes, I do have a couple notes in the scene where I was just like, Peter O'Toole acts so slowly. It drives me (laughs) insane. I was having some Lawrence flashbacks where I was like, just do the thing. (laughs) Have the emotion and get on with it. But we have this heartbreaking scene where Pui is told that his mother has died. Mm-hmm. And it would have been nice to see like a little bit more struggle of like, because it is his mother. He has barely seen her, but it is his mother. But you have the heartbreaking scene of him riding the bicycle and trying to leave.
0: Yeah. And one, they use the set to the full effect when they show him riding across the the Forbidden City. But, but they do actually a pretty decent job I thought of building some, some kind of like tension there as he gets toward the gate and gets out. Cause you have the guards there that it it was kind of weird to me how they were like all of a sudden, all right, reverent and respectful. And then all of a sudden when they saw what he was doing rushed and just, you see the gate shut and the light close out and it's just this dark end of a tunnel. And it just, Oh, was not expecting the mouse thing at the end, which was no. just like an added level of like sadness, cruelty which is a really weird mix of like emotion (laughs) slash action. But
1: no, I, I I loved the scene of him trying to leave and it it is such an interesting dynamic with the guards, right? Because as he gets close to the door and you can see him getting close to the door, he can see the outside world. He's so close and it's so clear where his power ends. Like Mm -hmm. within the forbidden city, he is all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He can say whatever he wants but he cannot leave that place. And it's such an interesting power dynamic and to see him test it and just the level of frustration. Cause you're right. Like the guards bow to him initially, but then they stop him. And the moment where he's like opened the door after they've closed the door and they all just look so sad at him. Cause they're like, we can't Yeah, <laughs> like, w- I, the, your authority ends there. And then when he just looks back at the captain and then just says, open the door and just like the pleading note in his voice mm-hmm. and the captain not saying anything, but just bowing to him like a, like a, I'm, I can't open the door for you. Like, like, yes, you are my emperor, but I, this thing I cannot do for you.
0: And ah, that's just gotta be such dissonance. To to be faced with that particular situation, so I it's a bit of a mind fuck.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 such a good sequence though because you know we talk about show don't tell, Mm -hmm. just like the the explicit demonstration of like this is what it means for him to be emperor at that time and the limitations of his omnipotence. (laughs) <laughs> her supposed omnipotence is so so interesting and so well done yeah but yes i agree the mouse bit was bad um i thought he was going to let the mouse go through the crack in the door I that's hoped. not what happened
0: uh yeah uh, we have a dead mouse don't know how he died whether it was the impact or prior to impact but i it, the mouse died not the worst visual you get in this film either uh which was no. slightly surprising
1: I, I have to say they had a couple like kind of graphic shots that did not need to be there. Like really didn't need to be there because like, I was like, man, you already like showed us like what the emotional impact is. Like we already know what's going to happen. Like yeah. we actually didn't need to see it. And I I felt like it actually kind of like cheapened the film a little bit.
0: So um, kind of moving into the next couple sets of scenes. So um the, only reason I'm mentioning this glasses scene is because I do appreciate how it, one, develops the character of Johnston a little bit to show that he is willing to kind of go to bat for Puyi for, you know, something as easy as needing to see. Even though the, all of the uh, dowager, is it the empress dowagers, dowager empresses are not yes. on board?
1: which uh he had previously said they call themselves my mothers but they are not
0: yeah that was a perfect example of you told me and didn't show me and i was not a fan and that happens so often in the back half and in the flash forwards in my opinion but that that that's a gripe with the structure that you mentioned earlier where i i don't need so much talking at me for exposition. especially in a
1: film this visually strong right like
0: oh my god the things that they could have done to show you for example the ransacking of the manchu tomb like there could have been some really engaging visual to like cut back and forth when that news is given like anyway sorry i'm getting ahead of myself but that's the one example that like sticks out in my head of why am i getting a data dump which kills me to say given it's so pretty
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. I I really I really do think it it is a case of re- weaker writing because like they do show they do show you so much that sometimes I'm like you it's it's not so much a don't tell me, show me. It's a why are you telling me you already showed me?
0: Yeah. <laughs> or I prefer you to show me.
1: <laughs> yes, to the glasses scene, Puy obviously is emotionally distraught um because he was like I'm going to go see my mother and my brother. He is blocked from doing that um he climbs onto a roof is very erratic definitely in danger of falling and here we really have like you said johnston kind of stepping up to bat for him and being like don't move stay there he ends up falling and i i took it as he fell and hit his head and that fucked up his vision is that what happened uh,
0: i don't actually n- know if that's what fucked up his vision
1: that's what seemed like it did it to me. And that's where, or at le- very least it's where Johnson realizes he needs glasses because, mm. uh, Johnson's, you know, they've created a chain of people. He's reaching out and he's like, grab my hand. And it seems like Puyi can't see his hand. We cut kind of the blurry shots of Johnson from Puyi's point of view. And Johnson's like, can you not see? And that's where we ensure the glasses. If, if, if the case isn't that he hit his head and then he needs glasses honestly I didn't need that scene <laughs> I didn't need the scene with Puyi on the roof because I think we already like we already understood how emotionally devastating what had happened with mm-hmm. the doors closing and him being forbidden from seeing his mother like we already understood how emotionally devastating that was because of the previous sequence was so well done that I I didn't need that other bit like honestly we could have just cut to to him needing glasses.
0: oh for sure. I mean, as part of that scene too, they did have this aside that was like an oblique reference to essentially stealing from the palace, which I I struggle with this particular storyline because it is something that actually happened where the staff was plundering the, the riches of, of the palace. There was a fire. The suspicion was that it was set there deliberately, but... In terms of the this storyline, it seemed so throwaway to me. Like just a reason to have like some beautiful fiery light on a bedroom scene, which I do want to talk about in more length, but like didn't need that either. So again, from like a narrative perspective, not a fan.
1: <laughs> Agreed. I would totally agree. I felt the same way about that storyline. And like you said, like it did happen. So I'm going to chalk that bit up to just kind of one of the pl- classic Pitfalls of uh, biographical films mm-hmm. that we've seen because we've done a lot of them, but we've kind of seen that happen multiple times, mm-hmm. right where there seems to be like a need to include everything.
0: I'm like, don't do that. just focus on the interesting bits.
1: <laughs> yeah, like even if it didn't happen and I feel like the biographical films that we've enjoyed the most and that have kind of we've ranked more highly are ones that definitely are focusing on like a certain period in that person's life. Yeah. And they're, they've like kind of like picked a theme and they're going for that theme, Mm -hmm. which I mean, it's better storytelling.
0: Oh, for sure. And my last thing I'll say on that particular storyline though, it does provide him motivation for expelling all the eunuchs. So like I,
1: which furthers his isolation.
0: It does. So like, i'm I'm torn because, like on the one hand, it does kind of further his character development, but at the same time, it became such an issue so quickly, I don't know, it's I needed more of a a development of that particular aspect of his wants.
1: I think also we never saw the like completion of that character development too, so it felt even more throwaway. Like it, yeah. It felt like that was just another like add-on to like paranoia, isolation, meanness for him. And then we never. It felt like that was part of a setup for like honestly, I I'm gonna keep bringing it up, and I know it's unfair to compare it to in some ways, but like a saliary esque spiral, and I. Just, I don't think we quite got there. No,
0: I, I totally agree. So in this section as well, we did have him picking a wife and getting married. Actually, two wives.
1: That's two wives.
0: The first time that they meet, I actually, well, on the surface, I love this scene. I have some modern sensibilities about uh, a, like, maturity and consent that are like, that gives me some some squick here, but just kind of the tenderness of, I don't know, that just feels wrong to talk about it in those words. I don't know. That kind of ruined that scene for me, but I don't know about you.
1: Well, I think what it sets up is it sets up like the dynamic between um, Wen Zhu and uh, Won Rong of like kind of being friends because there's something, there's something later when... Um, uh, when you ask for a divorce and basically like runs away almost, it seems like where one wrong is very sexy. She's like, she was my only friend here, mm-hmm. but it sets that up. But I was hoping to see more complexity and like that dynamic. Cause that's like, like that's a tricky dynamic.
0: Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then
1: I, it also set up like initially like Pui and one wrong really getting along. Mm-hmm. And because there's um, the scene after, like, uh, they they have uh, some alone time together, but then end up being like, oh, yeah, well, part ways for the moment. And uh, <laughs> she's saying, like, oh, I think I'm really going to like him. And, of course, she's like, you know, when he gets, like, I, th- I think he's going to grow into a man I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of doesn't happen. So it's a little bit like a failed prophecy, kind of. But I... <laughs> I don't. I, I struggle so much because I was like, this scene was beautifully shot. And I think overall, the actors do a lot with what they're given. But mm-hmm. I just, they weren't given as like deep material as I wanted them to yeah. be given a lot of the time. And I felt like this scene was also like a little bit of missed opportunity. I do think, though, it's very interesting where you have um, kind of like... Uh, the reveal um, between Puyi and Wanrong when they finally Mm -hmm. get to like talk just the two of them and you can still hear the ceremony going on in the background. I thought that juxtaposition was so like interesting and good because it's like, oh, here are the two people, the two kids, really. I mean, they're teenagers, like the the two teens who were like, like, the fate of the, the position is like, put on them and everything and it's like all of this ceremony but like they're just two kids have never met each other and meeting each other for the first time and then just juxtaposing that to the amount of like ceremony and seriousness going on in the background
0: It, it that is is super interesting to me and i i did i also struggle with the the scene where um, I made reference to it earlier about the, the bedroom scene where both uh, the Empress and the first consort are in bed with um, Puyi. But the amount of horniness that came out of literally nowhere <laughs> <laughs> was so off. Like I was like, wait a minute, what just happened? <laughs> so I like, I don't know. I, I wish that that had blossomed into some more like, seeing them actually bond and i mean like we do see what am i trying to say we see the result of them being close in some ways like specifically one wrong and puyi but we don't really see it develop and given kind of that state in like stage of life could have been a really interesting thing to see and the lingering shot on that bed sheet, oh <laughs> too long, yeah,
1: <laughs> yes, oh my God, it was too long, like like it's a beautiful shot, but it is too long, though i even though we we talked about like um the fire and like the staff stealing and everything, i the juxtaposition of like what's happening beneath the sheets, and then you have the fire light light <laughs> up like that was that was uh funny and very good visual storytelling but again like and, and the fact that like literally the story of next is on fire and they don't care because they're so horny
0: well it's they're rekindling the love in <laughs> the emperor's bed like no it, yeah. it is like such a not a visual pun but like a visual like wink it i don't know the the construction yeah. of that is great the pacing of it left some to be desired for me
1: Agreed. Well, and I I think you're right. Like it would have been nice to see like more focus on like the relationship and it builds and everything. But I think part of that's just like they're they're covering so much time, right? So like this this again is like why I think biographical films are innately very tricky, and mm-hmm. I don't think like super super good ones are all like they're kind of rare to have like a really good, just super solid biographical film. And I think it's because like oftentimes they're just trying to cover too much.
0: Yeah. And I I do think that this to some extent suffers from that. Even though though it's uh, 208 minutes long.
1: (laughs) It's like I loved individual scenes, but I I did not like how they were strung together. It's very weird. I have a lot of mixed feelings.
0: I mean, yes, same. Same. So we mentioned the Eunice being expelled, but the scene in which uh, Pugi and his uh, wives are expelled, I thought was glorious. Both mm-hmm. the tennis court piece and them actually leaving in the car. Like you have this deserted forbidden city and them just playing tennis in their dandiest tennis whites. Like...
1: Well... They're, this was interesting too, if you noticed when they're in the forbidden city, they're in like Western dress, like Western 1920s uh. dress as they're leaving and being expelled Ooh. and like getting into the car, they are in more traditional um, dress. And I, it, it's kind of like the again, that separation of like what goes on in the forbidden city and like who he can be there versus who he is and has to be to like the rest of the world. And I, I wish they'd leaned into it more and they, They start to like. There's the line that Pui has about, you know, I I always wanted so badly to leave, and now I want to stay. But that's really the last time we get that. Like, yeah. Like, oh, I almost wish that this was that the movie like that was the end. That like they Mm -hmm. had focused more on like the growing up, and that that was the end. That the whole theme was like. The wanting so desperately to get out, and then the cruel irony of like you get out, you know, you finally get that motor car, but.
0: Well, and even with the getting the emperorship—is that the term in um, Manchuko? That I think could be another really interesting dog caught the car moment, but we don't see, we don't see him processing that in any material way
1: and we we don't get a ton of like motive. Like I feel like mm. I feel like I like Agreed. kind of had to surmise motive for that. Like I was like, well, cuz we get some of like, you know, being playboy and Sen and um with a, with a very jarring cut I do, uh, we have also cutting back and forth into the prison. I want to talk again more about like the frame story stuff at the end. But there is a cut where he's like saying to the prison guard about his story. He's like, and then I became a playboy and there's the piano trill.
0: (laughs) I was not prepared for that.
1: It was a little hammy and I was, I don't know if I liked it or not. Um, I'm going to say a tentative. I liked it.
0: It it was a little cringy for me and it got even cringier slash uh, like, this film was made in the late 80s. Why do we have blackface?
1: Because uh, it's set in the 20s. Uh, and somebody thought that... I don't know. I don't... They honestly, took so much liberty honestly, with his I life. don't know what somebody was thinking. I have <laughs> like, no idea what they were thinking. I... Yes, I... Ooh, hated. Hated that scene. But, like, while we're there, we see, like, that's when when you decides on the divorce and we really only like, get one scene kind of explaining why she wants that right it's where she's dancing with the american guy and she says in the car on the way home that like here like in the forbidden city i was the secondary consort but like that doesn't mean anything here like here i'm just your mistress and like that's the only scene so like the devolution of their relationship comes like super fast
0: yeah i i thought That devolution was like super, super fast, but I will say the, the deep blue sadness, which they use as shorthand for both the Empress and the first consort, um, when they're in their kind of lowest lows that you see in the car with them is just fascinating. And did you notice that they put him on the side, not in the middle? So when they left the forbidden city that he was in the middle, but all of a sudden you have when she like physically separated from him, I just, just such a great touch to reinforce kind of how that that's going. So I, uh, this is what I'm talking about where like these individual scenes are amazing yes. and like such perfect examples of how to like show everything. And then it, yeah. Anyway, <laughs>
1: well, I, I wanted so more of a reaction and I, and I don't want to blame loans performance because I, I feel like it's the writing. I don't think it's him. Puyi almost like has no emotion about that until like she repeats it at the house and he's like, oh no, like he has the like, no one divorces me. But like, I, I di- hadn't gotten enough personality from gr- from him as an adult to like really understand where he sat on this. I do love the scene of when she leaves and it's raining mm-hmm. and the, re- the guy's giving her the umbrella and the repeated, I don't need it. I do not need it. Like loved that because like, obviously she doesn't need the umbrella. She also doesn't need the marriage. She doesn't need him. Like,
0: and she's like figuratively being washed clean of this weight. Like it's such a beautiful, like, ah.
1: it's a beautiful scene. And it would have meant so much more to me emotionally. If the movie as a whole was centered on the relationship between Mm -hmm. these two, three people. But like, because it's jumbled in there with everything else like it didn't get the screen time it deserved to have the emotional impact of that moment hit as hard as it could have and i god i feel like that's so much of this movie is like you'll hit what should be these emotionally satisfying climactic scenes and they fall flat because You know, they're not coming at the end of the movie. They're coming randomly based on which of the 11 plot lines we're following, whether it's the relationship, the political, the, you know, it was very frustrating. Mm -hmm.
0: I will say that this was my favorite part of the soundtrack. And I did think it worked here on that scene when she's leaving. So Mm -hmm. I do want to at least soften my earlier critiques for this scene.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But, um, you know, we were talking about motive and not really understanding his motive so much. Again, this this is the piece where he, the time period where he's really starting to be courted by the Japanese. We're kind of like, I guess, right at the kickoff of the second Sino-Japanese war. I I don't think, has Japan actually invaded Manchuria yet? Or is it like getting ready for that to happen?
0: It. Feels like it.
1: It's to a certain extent. I feel like I I wasn't so clear in this section exactly what was happening mm-hmm. out like outside and politically. Like I like we had a general idea, which I mean, to a certain extent, you're kind of like, yeah, that's all you need for the movie. Like, go research on your own. And I guess it also could be reflective of, of Puyi not really. Knowing what's happening, because it comes very clear that while he may have been schooled on, you know, history and politics and he might know the theory of stuff, he doesn't truly understand the dynamics that he's working with.
0: And I mean, that that's becomes super clear. Now, before we move to, like, actually him being installed as emperor, Mm -hmm. there is the introduction of Eastern Jewel. um, God, we got to talk about
1: her. She's crazy.
0: Oh my God, this like f- flight slash driving suit that she shows up in is everything.
1: <laughs> yes, she is nuts though. She's like, I'm a spy.
0: Yeah, like and I don't care who knows it.
1: it. And uh, I was like, that's not how spies work. And so for a bit, I was like, is she really a spy? Does she, is she just saying it? Like the real I mean, she
0: person was. She is, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I pulled up her Wikipedia after that. I was like, who is this person? And I was like, oh, they are freaking character
0: i will say i really really hate the way they play her into this predatory lesbian stereotype later on really hate that really hate that such horrible representation but i'll leave it at that but this is the part where there was that data dump about the tomb and i was like why didn't you show us this
1: well, and she's using it to convince Puyi to, like, become the the puppet emperor of Manchukuo. But I don't know. It could have been, clear, like, clearer. I still wasn't 100% sure, like, why he was accepting it. I assumed it's because he didn't understand... Kind of a lot of the factors that were going on in the background and mm-hmm. also just desperately wanted to be emperor again and maybe like felt a little lost not being an emperor, but it wasn't super clear except for when we cut back to the prison and the the like warden like says that to him or something and like accused because he's adamant of with of like i was kidnapped i didn't actually do it and the warden's like yes you did yeah and this book that johnston wrote and i was uh, this was the moment it was it was this was the bit where i was like oh they could have gone really hard on the like different people have different accounts and like different um assumptions about his motives and you don't know who's telling the truth but they didn't lean into that enough and it was coming far too late in the movie like I, it was an interesting idea and they just didn't play with it early enough and for long enough
0: yeah and i, I really was not a fan of the editing in this scene either because the they had these very leisurely cuts between uh modern prc and what well, actually was it prc at that point yes and the scene um at the at the resort and it was very choppy very quick in comparison to everything around it which i was not a fan of that style especially given how poorly it seemed to contrast it's almost like i see that done in comedy sometimes where it's like used to undermine a character in kind of like a comedic way but in this particular application it just didn't work and I, I'm I'm struggling to say exactly why, but it just it wasn't weighty enough somehow.
1: It's like a weird change in style, like more than halfway through the film.
0: Yeah, I think that's really what, what threw me off is that it felt unlike any part before or after.
1: Yes, and it felt like there wasn't a whole lot of reason to do it. Like I didn't gain anything from it. There is a shot that i friggin adore though um after he has accepted the emperorship and you have just in the plains of manchuria the golden throne and in the background this like destroyed industrial complex what a shot like what a shot
0: and just the color they just use the saturation of the frame so well and in this part it's very vibrant in the foreground but it's like you have the monster of decay and war just like looming in the background in this gray that just it's seeping the life out of the the planes so it's uh, It's like the pretense
1: versus the reality yeah um we have joan chen doing some wonderful stuff uh where eastern jewel kind of shows her hand like previously, she was being very buddy buddy. Uh-huh. Um, and she's like, Oh, yeah, I want to see Shanghai burn. And one Wan- one wrong's like, Oh, ex- excuse me? I hate
0: you. <laughs> but there is, again, they're playing into that like weird predatory lesbian trope. And it is not.
1: <laughs> yes. Hate that. Love Joan Chen's facial expression of like, oh, God, who have we gotten ourselves mixed up with? Like, she immediately realizes the mistake. I don't think Puyi has realized the mistake yet. I just I felt like after a certain point, we just weren't getting a lot from him. Like, they just weren't giving him anything to convey at all what Puyi was thinking or how he felt. Like, we would get cuts of him at the prison, but I was like, I don't. Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to believe you or not. Like, who are you? I feel like at this point in the film, I lost my idea of who this character was. Like, I feel like, you know, as a kid and a teenager, I very concretely knew this character. And then suddenly I lost the character. And I was like, I don't I don't know. Am I supposed to feel sorry for you? Am I supposed to hate you? Like, am I yeah. supposed to cheer for you? I was like, what... Who are you? What do you want? Why do you want it? I don't fully understand.
0: Yeah. And I think for me, that's because they seemed to try and pivot to focus more on one wrong, not necessarily the right move. And so you you really see that as you move into kind of the coronation celebration party where they have this Strauss Waltz playing and this like very high class, very Western feeling ceremony.
1: I loved how this was shot. Again, oh, yes. Joan Chen killing it. Um, I want to call out the score in this bit. Uh, it is heavily implied that Wanrong Rong and Eastern Jewel have been smoking opium, and it was kind uh-huh. of alluded to earlier. And the way the score changes, you also have the shadows of like Eastern Jewel like picking up the train of her dress and everything, which is impeccable. But as you have one wrong kind of floating through the party, and you have the score kind of get a little like trippy and whimsical mm-hmm. as she's like clearly high, um, you have her eating the flowers.
0: Orchids. Yeah, the orchids. I was like, what is going on? But
1: I know I was like the symbolism here, but I was also like, this is just crazy and wise. Oh my god, the symbolism! You're so her? right. But I was like, <laughs> well, why? Because she's I was the like, Empress. but if you're.
0: Like, what's someone gonna say? If you were
1: at that party, you'd be like, the the fuck is that lady doing? I was, it was, it was weirdly whimsical in a film that has not been super whimsical. And then at that point, I was almost like, man, I wish they'd leaned into like the fantasy and the whimsy earlier, too. Like, have more of these kind of like cognizant or cognitive dissident moments. Like, that would have been really cool. Um, But they didn't. They just did it here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, I read it as very sinister. Like, it it can be whimsical, but it can be, like, super scary. I'm thinking, like, some of the Alice in Wonderland, like, super crazy but super terrifying things. And that is what this felt like. And honestly, the scene where Wan Rong is confronted by Puyi and there's just this longing for connection that you see in Wan Rong that – she is getting nothing out of Puyi. He's a like wooden board, which I think works in this scene. I wish he was less of a wooden board across this entire, uh, I guess, sequence of of scenes.
1: But I mean, other. Go ahead. I was gonna say, other than their wedding night, we never really saw them being affectionate to each other. You know. So I.
0: This seemed uncharacteristically cold, though. Like more than.
1: Yeah, but I guess if. <sighs> Again, in order for, like, this scene to be as, like, satisfying as I think it could have been story-wise, like, if the movie had been more focused on their relationship
0: yep. <laughs>
1: throughout, then I think, like, we could have seen, like, the high points of the relationship. Like, he becomes the the man who she's, like, oh, I, I think I'm really going to like him. Like, he becomes that man, and then we start seeing, like, the devolution of the relationship. We see, like the politics and the stress getting in the way of it, we see more of like her descent into addiction. Like I just, again, if you, if you had picked any one of these segments, kind of almost subplots, it feels just like a movie of subplots. If you'd picked one of them and like focused on it and you were like, this is the story I'm going to tell. These are the themes I'm going to dive into and like limited it more. Like, Oh, could have packed so much more punch.
0: For sure. We could have had more scenes of Wan Rong walking defiantly away while after giving this amazing toast with the streamers coming down. And again, oh, I after point he tells out here, her to go
1: up to her room. Yeah. It's so good.
0: It's and then you roll immediately into this amazingly framed shot of Eastern Rose and her on the like fainting. Eastern couch. Jewel. Eastern jewel not eastern rose apologies
1: there is also the weird bit with like the camera following one wrong and then mm-hmm. and you have like the camera operator like really looking at her and i was like are they going to have an affair i was like not sure why we were focused so intently on that yeah. and i was like oh if, again if we're embracing the more fantastical element Maybe stuff like that has been woven in more early on and you have this theme of like always feeling watched and you have like the idea of needing to be on all the time and that's grating on her and it's destroying their relationship. But again, we just get it in this scene and I'm like, what could have (laughs) been?
0: Exactly. And I mean, even with that particular example, she had just smoked some opium. So like you could play into this like, drug-fueled fever dream that I think this is supposed to be. Now, I still maintain that I am not such a fan of the the switching to focus more on her cuz I think it it just made it much of a looser and less tidy narrative arc. But that
1: Agreed. I'm just introducing like this is another area that they could have focused on that could have been so interesting because I don't I don't think it's an issue of like they decided to do a biographical film on a boring historical character, like figure. I I said character, or almost a character, but you know, like I don't. I don't think they picked necessarily a boring story. I just think they tried to cover too much. Yeah. And I think if you like, I'm just trying to highlight that there are like so many interesting angles they could have taken instead of trying to hit them all. If they had really like picked a lane on it, I think it could have been so so much more impactful and so so much better of a watch um, yeah. because like all of the elements to execute on any one of those angles are clearly there because they have like a scene or two that does it and then that's it.
0: <laughs> oh, well, we still got to have the visual feast for the eyes. Um, yes,
1: I will take that. Yeah.
0: So the, the next set of scenes in Manchuria is really us getting to see how Puyi's power is purely figure figurative and you see the japanese i guess handlers for lack of a better way to put it chipping away i at think his that's authority. accurate um so it, like it starts with him returning from um i believe tokyo at mainland japan for sure and seeing that all of his guards have no weapons That's like the first thing. And then immediately go into trying to have him approve the new prime minister, who is who his Japanese handlers have asked him, well, told him to approve. The scene where the entire governing body walks out as he's trying to give a speech about equality and respect is such a powerful expression of how, like, helpless and powerless he actually is he can do nothing to stop them from walking out of his presence while he's spouting off about what he thought this was but was too naive to actually listen to one wrong about
1: yeah and at this point we don't have johnston anymore did you feel like johnston just like disappeared and we never got like a good explanation like he just kind of drops out of the story it's very odd
0: yeah i didn't understand really why he left other than war was heating I mean, up
1: war yeah but I I mean you have the like scene like the goodbye scene as apparently dictated in Johnston's book and then Puyi being like he's a liar he wasn't there but then <laughs> yeah. I was also like I want to I want to see why Puyi is so like quick to throw Johnston under the bus like it was just again, it was another relationship that I was like, this was introduced and I feel like I never got to see it fulfilled. So again, another angle they could have taken. Let's look at that period of time and talk (laughs) about like mentors and like people who you put all your trust in and are fatherly to you. And then maybe like as the war ramps up who he starts to feel like he's been abandoned. And like, again, like we, there are so many interesting angles, but it doesn't work if you try and do all of them. (laughs)
0: So things rapidly deteriorate. Um we have the plot line around one Rong's child who is killed by the Japanese uh doctor at birth and called stillborn.
1: My my note is well, fuck everyone and everything.
0: <laughs> I think I said, and wow, they killed the kid. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. I
1: also <laughs> with that and a, and apparently that was historically accurate, but I was like, "Why would you, why would you need to kill the child? You already have like all the proof and know that the kid's illegitimate."
0: Well, but the thing is, do they actually know that, or are they just playing them?
1: They say that they do, and she's confirmed it. So I took that as oh, so. I got you. There's the scene where she's telling Puyi at like breakfast or whatever. Mm-hmm. She's like, "I'm pregnant." It, we had established at the party that like they have not slept together in a while. He's pissed about her opium addiction because that's what killed his mother, which again, another facet to their relationship that we're just told once briefly and could have been so much more of a thing. And she's like, well, I got pregnant. Like I did this for us because like you need an heir. And yeah. she confirms that she's like, the father is Manchurian. Cause like he, he is Manchurian. Yeah. So I, I think that was her being like, look, I made this political move for us because like, well, stuff is bad, and like you have no sort of bargaining power. So I then took when um I guess it's it's is it the Japanese chancellor? I wasn't exactly sure what his function was, but he's the guy. He's the one who's actually in charge. He brings like a dossier and is like, yeah, we know it's not a legitimate kid. We know who the father is, it's your chauffeur, like all of this information, and is like, don't worry, he's gonna be dealt with and has Puyi sign what. I thought it was some sort of execution order. Oh, but then they have this shot. No,
0: that was them basically blackmailing him into uh, approving Signing prime something minister.
1: else. Okay, so he approves the prime minister. But yeah. the the point is, they have him sign a lot of stuff. The point is, we didn't need the shot then, the very graphic shot of the chauffeur getting shot in the back of the head because in that previous scene where the tension was really good, where you have like, the push and pull and all of the political stuff, like the implied dialogue of like, we know who it is and it's going to be dealt with. And that person's fucked. Like we we all, we knew what was going to happen. Yeah. We didn't need to see it. It's um, honestly more terrifying if we were like, oh shit, he's going to be dealt with. I don't know what that means, but it cannot be good. Yeah.
0: But we mentioned about, uh, one wrongs child. Um, she is essentially, Probably not of her own volition. Taken to some resort or asylum, absolutely or not. Because like something. they're
1: like, "Oh yeah, she's going," and um, she's actually already left. And you have yeah. him running through the palace after the car, and that's when his isolation becomes complete.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think to like kind of break form a little bit, we do get a flash forward here of all of the prisoners in the um, Fushun prison watching a kind of a newsreel slash documentary of what happened around this time frame um, with the Sino-Japanese War as well as World War II. Get some footage of a whole bunch of stuff that I definitely was not prepared for, um, as in like aftermath of testing biological agents against real people, the invasion of Nanjing in which much violence was perpetrated against especially women and children, Um, so yeah,
1: it's a, it's a rough segment, but it's very important because it's the first time Puyi seems to be seeing this stuff and kind of his realization of like, I let this happen, even though like, you know, he said he didn't know about any of it, um, and that he like, wasn't willingly, um, installed, uh but this you know his name is specifically mentioned you have him the the lovely shot of him standing up with just a look of mm-hmm. horror on his face of like this this is what i stood by and let happen like these are the people yeah. yeah these are the people i enabled and it's, all the other prisoners turn to look at him such a powerful moment and i think would have been so much more powerful if we had seen more of like him aggressively, t- like if he'd been more aggressive toward the warden as like a, I did nothing wrong kind of d- thing. Like, I feel like if we'd seen him previously act like he was more sure of what he'd done than to see the realization of like what he had actually done and allowed to happen. Yeah. Like, I think that moment could have been, could have been more powerful if I was more convinced more convinced that he didn't know and that like he had thought he was doing something good or important. You know what I mean? Cause, yeah. cause it's, it already seems like, you know, as his powers gotten chip, gotten more and more chipped away, like he already, he seems already like reluctant. Like, it seems like he already knows he's in a really bad place and like really bad stuff's happening. Like, I don't know, maybe like less awareness during that bit so that like the full force of it can hit him later. I don't, the balance was off. The balance was just off somehow.
0: I would agree. Now the transition into uh, the past as they are preparing to evacuate was amazing because they end the documentary film with the voice of the Japanese emperor talking about surrendering. And then you transition to seeing it on a radio as it's happening real time another part where beautiful
1: transition yes why didn't they have all the transitions between the two like that like
0: it's yeah really cool technique they could have used but this is I mean where shit really it's the fan for Puyi. not that it hasn't before but this is like there's actually no getting out so yes Wan Rong is back and looking rough actress Wan
1: killing it like her entire physicality is different She's not holding herself proudly. She's hunched. She looks weak. She's moving. Not erratically, but like
0: shambling. stumbling. It's
1: like shambling yeah, sh- it's a shamble. That's a good one. Absolutely killing it. She's clearly really suffering from her addiction. I like that she is spitting on everyone she comes across because she's like, you let this happen to me. <laughs> you facilitated this. Yeah. Fuck you. Fuck you. I think he's the only one she doesn't spit on, but she like, looks at him and then just goes around him.
0: Ugh, the dismissal.
1: Yeah, it's it's great. You have her go to, like, I guess what was her old room and just shut the door on him. But again, could have been so much more of a powerful moment if we'd taken different angles. Sorry, Pretty I'm sure. just going to continue <laughs> to hammer that home.
0: <laughs> but uh, they, they go to the um, airfield, and I actually really loved how they were all ready to go. And then there's the reveal that there's no one in the cockpit to fly the plane. And you see the Russian paratroopers just falling in the sky ahead of them. So it's like, again, showing me that they're not getting out of there. <laughs> I That I thought was great. Like, so I think that pretty much ends the flashback portion. And from there on out, we see um, at the war crimes prison and forward in Puyi's life.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about all of the prison stuff. I do want to backtrack a little bit. So the prison has kind of up until this point been used as a framing story, right? Mm -hmm. Like we start on it. We have a long time where we don't see it. And I was just like, oh, it's going to be like a bookend kind of story. We're like 40 minutes in before we see the prison again, which was super jarring. And then they they start cutting it in more often. So it's like they changed their style of framing the story because now all of the prisoners are being handed books or are like write your story and it better be accurate. Like this is your chance to repent. And I was like, we could have started with, th- like if we wanted to use that as the framing, that could have been the first shot. And then the whole movie is like his written account and then that would make the splicing in and out where he's being questioned by a good cop bad cop Mm -hmm. there was a very strong good cop bad cop routine happening and like laughably so
0: that was i think that's why i didn't like it because it was too earnest and also too one note and too forceful At least with the one interrogator.
1: But, like, those are the scenes where you have him, like, insisting it's fine. But then also at one point, after being questioned about part of his story, or maybe it's right before the questioning happens, you see the warden pick up Johnston's book. And then we have, like almost like johnston's telling the story and we have the warden being like well johnston says this in his book and you say this and like bringing in other people to confirm the story and that's where i was like why aren't we just using the rashomon effect to be like these are all like you know you could have kind of broken up the story into acts then that way right like you have maybe like one of the palace servants is telling the first part as he's a kid, or you have like Armo telling the first part as he's a kid, and then you have Johnson telling that second part, and then you have like one wrong telling the next part. Like, then it could have been like, oh, yeah, all of these people have different accounts of this person, and he's portrayed drastically different depending on who you're talking to. Um, like that could have been cool, but because they only use it in one segment, it doesn't work, and then. At the very end, we have this chunk that's all back into the prison and suddenly, like, nice wardens, like, mad at him because he's like, you didn't know about the experiments. There's no way you could have. So why are you acting like it's all your fault and you're bad? And I was like, is he acting like it's all his fault? Because I wasn't getting that.
0: He confessed to it all. But this is where, like, I was not... I didn't
1: buy his confession. I was like, is he just appeasing that? Like, I...
0: But this is where like I'm not sure what the filmmakers had to say about him as like a character. Because this is where we've seen him depicted as a petulant child. We've seen him depicted as a, a distant and single-mindedly focused on the emperor seat adult. We've seen like glimmers of some ideological, misty-eyed reminiscing of what an emperor in a country should be. And now all of a sudden we have a martyr. So like I am so confused as to what I'm supposed to make of Pugi as a character.
1: Right, and I agreed, and I didn't understand why the warden so badly wanted to help him. Like it was, it was just a weird interaction.
0: That seemed clear to me, especially after that line about "Is that so terrible to be useful?" And I was like, "If only you knew, uh, warden. If only but again, you." Knew. But
1: <laughs> if they had leaned more into like that theme, like I feel like that theme wasn't particularly explored enough. Like it was hit upon, but like this isn't the story of a person who wanted to be useful. And then in that desire to be useful and be a part of something really messed up.
0: Yeah. And he didn't fly too coast to the sun.
1: Yeah. Like that's not the story that I felt like I was told. Like I felt like there were elements of mm-hmm. the story about that, but it wasn't, I don't know. It just it didn't ring true.
0: And I mean, even the his parole release, it was like, oh, I see why he was useful now. Because you got to show that you can be reformed and show mercy and all of that.
1: But also, why is the movie still going at oh, this point? do you <laughs> like, know what
0: my note is right there? Okay, but how is there 13 minutes left?
1: <laughs> especially because since this was introduced at the beginning in the prison and then we had flashbacks, I assumed that was like legitimately our framing device. But like, I... It's all over the place structurally. It is.
0: And I mean, the the remaining scenes in what is the, quote, more modern China, with him seeing the rise of the Communist Party and all of that, like, was I supposed to take it as him seeing, like, things come and go? Things just always do whatever? So I, it's just, I struggle.
1: Which could have been really cool if the whole, you know, point of the film and all of the themes we were talking about was about, like, cycles, yeah. And the political <laughs> cycles, but it didn't seem to be necessarily about that. It just happened to include it. You know, we get him seeing the warden mm-hmm. um, being kind of paraded around and like wanting to step in for him. And that was another thing as I was like, this kindly old gardener Puyi is very different from like the like anything I've seen previously. Like it was, but I it didn't feel earned. Agreed like it felt like I was looking at a different character and I had no idea how he got here. Um, I do like that he's getting to ride his bike through the streets like he always wanted. We have him going to the Forbidden uh, City. I love the shot of him buying a ticket to get
0: Mm -hmm. in. It's such... Is irony the right word? Yeah, I think so. It's like buying a ticket to go in your own house. Like, what? Well,
1: and (laughs) and the place that you had so wanted to leave, you're like Uh, paying to get back into. He has the interaction with the little kid which I think is a charming interaction
0: and the color shift here like you go immediately you get that nostalgia gold and it even pushes closer and closer to that imperial yellow that he made such a big deal about early on in the film like I love how all of a sudden it's a dream with that Mm -hmm. so I don't know there was part of me that was like this felt kind of like the and she threw it into the water at the end Titanic ending in some ways (laughs) But that I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I feel about then flashing all the way forward to modern time where they mention Puyi. In well, a I
1: sentences. want to talk actually really quickly a little bit more about that interaction with the kid, though. Um, there's the bit where he's like, "I used to live here. I I was the emperor," and the kid's like, "Prove it." So he goes to sit on the throne and he pulls the box with the cricket yeah. in it that he you know had put back there when he was a kid. I would have loved that if the cricket had been a bigger deal. <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah. Also, the cricket was alive. So, like, what's this magical realism situation going on?
1: (laughs) Again, would have loved it if there had been more magical realism throughout the movie other than just the, like, party scene that we talked about earlier. Like, I feel like I was watching five different movies spliced into one movie. It was weird. But yes, and then we have this sudden cut to what would have been current day in the 80s. And you have the tour guide giving the tour and they just give the one line about like the last emperor. Here's when he was born. Here's when he died. And that's it. And I think the purpose of that was to be like, oh, yes, this entire life that was filled with all of these like ups and downs and all of this like complicated political history happened during is just reduced to two sentences. But it was jarring. I didn't like it. It felt out of place. No. You should have ended on the cricket.
0: Exactly. And him The just live disappearing. cricket
1: crawling out and it being like yes, because oh, and then it's all the magical realism and Yes. I'm upset. I, Ian, I'm upset. I'm, with
0: you. I'm so with you. So that is uh The Last Emperor. Again, it is so pretty. It is painfully pretty. Like I the only reason this film is not going to be like at the bottom of my list for its narrative flaws is because the visuals pull it up so far like like i'm going out on a limb a bit here but this might be the best if definitely in the top 5 like from the visuals for me like
1: agreed i mean the shit. cinematography is phenomenal and and like i said like i think the performances are good like i think people are doing like, you have really amazing moments from all of the actors. I think people are doing the best with what they have. I I think the dialogue's fine. You got a couple really, really nice lines in there. I think I think what really hurts this movie is the structural inconsistency and the fact that, I mean, that they had a vision, but not like a vision, if you know what I mean. Like, they, they knew aesthetics and how they wanted the movie to look, but they didn't really have an idea of, I think the story that they wanted to tell and the the takeaways that they wanted people to have, I think they were kind of all over the place and they just tried to do too much and therefore were not effectively able to do really anything.
0: I would agree with you there. So lists. Mm -hmm. I think I know where I'm going to be putting it. So I'm actually putting it relatively high definitely in my top half um given all of the criticism we had about the narrative structure um but i'm putting it at number f- 24 so that puts it after patent another uh, biopic and before from here to eternity so like when we really for me like I said, the visuals are what are keeping it out of the bottom half for me. Like hundred percent stunning visuals. Um, but when you talk about having a character that is interesting to watch and show, like a solid arc, even if it is like a devolution into your own kind of insanity and hangups, like how I viewed Patton, there was an arc there, <laughs> and it was interesting.
1: And I think Patton's a great example of a biographical film that you're not looking at a person's entire life. Like you really Mm -hmm. are looking at a very specific time period in his life. And so you can do more and dig deeper.
0: Yeah. Um, And then the, the visuals, again, like that is like from Here to Eternity had some really good select scenes. I cannot think of a single moment in this film where I was like, Oh, that just didn't look quite right. <laughs> like it was dare I say, perfect. <laughs> so that's, I'm going to, I'm going to like back off almost perfect. Cause it scares me to call something perfect, but.
1: <laughs> um, I, I mean also, uh, yeah, again, we've, we criticized this quite a bit. So, but it's, it's higher than I think, um, people might expect based on that criticism. And it, I, I feel like I criticize this one so heavily in the structure just because I so wanted it to work. Like, like you said, it's so pretty and like there's so much promise. So I, I just felt like extra bitter that it wasn't delivered on. Uh, <laughs> yes. But it's, it's like, it's maybe in my, it's in my bottom half, but it's kind of middle of the pack. It, it's like sort of the top of my bottom half, I guess. I'm putting it at number 34, um, so it is just after Grand Hotel and just before Life of Emile Zola. Grand Hotel, I think, you know, we definitely had some criticism around like some some kind of stilted performances. The writing's not always impeccable, but I, I really understood what the movie was trying to tell me. I think it had a really strong handle on themes. Um, there are also some really great shots of Grand Hotel. It's got some very impressive uh, production design as well. It goes above Life of Emile Zola. I did, I think I enjoyed Life of Emile Zola more story-wise. It was, but it was another biographical picture that I think, you know, while it goes very hard on the uh, Dreyfus affair, it does do a lot of like stuff before that and like setting up the character, you know, like it, it does show too much of Zola's life. So I think it falls into like, the same pitfalls that the last emperor does, where to a certain extent it's it's trying to do too much. It just kind of can't compete with last emperor as far as visuals go.
0: No, not at all. And that's not to say that like some of the courtroom scenes were great to watch, but yeah, it's it's not <laughs> it's not a painting on my screen.
1: <laughs> yes, the dialogue might be a little bit stronger, but like in general, it it has some very nice monologues. Um, we didn't get a ton of monologues in last emperor, but I just, yeah, last Emperor's just got the edge.
0: All right. Well, I think that wraps up, uh, the last emperor.
1: You can of course find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Twitter at best pictures pod on both. Please email us in, um, We are Podcast at gmail.com. If you have something more long form you want to tell us or, um, you know, if you have a lot of thoughts on Last Emperor, we'd love to hear about those. Uh, Do you agree with us? Do you disagree? Did you love it? Did you hate it? We'd love to hear all of that. Rate, subscribe, review as always.
0: And thanks for listening. And uh, again, join us next time for a special episode uh, we think Roman Holiday. I was Holiday, gonna say, yeah? I'm gonna cut uh, the Yes, other Roman part
1: Holiday. I already told. I already told you Roman Holiday. You've asked me three times.
0: I know, but remember, I get my I get my Hepburns mixed up, so I have to make I sure know. I'm like watching the right film. <laughs> I, it's horrible. I, I it's horrible. Think... I don't know why I do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Every time, it's insane. Um, but yes, join us next time for a special Valentine's Day episode. Um, we will have. Uh, one of our favorite special guests back on. um, And we will be talking about Roman Holiday.